I am Brooklyn-based psychotherapist Nikita Banks, and I am your host of Black Therapist Podcast, formerly of Black in Therapy. Black Therapist Podcast is the podcast where we discuss the unique issues people of color face when dealing with mental health issues and mental health diagnosis. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Black Therapist Podcast, or you can follow us on our Facebook fan page at Black in Therapy, or my fan page at Nikita Banks LMSW. You can email us fan mail, general feedback, and show suggestions at blacktherapistpodcast at gmail.com. You can sign up for our mailing list at blacktherapistpodcast.com. Tweet, share, like, leave us comments on whatever platform you listen to us at, whether it be SoundCloud, Google Play, iTunes, Apple Music, Stitcher, etc. We are wherever podcasts are found. Hey guys, so welcome to this week's episode of Black Therapist Podcast. So before we get into this show, I wanted to once again reiterate that I have designed an online platform for my listeners and just people with the sound of my voice. I'm gonna if you see me in the grocery store, I'm probably gonna tell you to go sign up for our free mental health course for people of color. And the reason that I designed the course is because I think it's important that each and every one of us know what to do to create a mental wellness plan, as well as educate ourselves on the difference of having a mental health issue and a mental health diagnosis. And so if you would like to have that information, please sign up to our mailing list at blacktherapistpodcast.com or you can sign up to the mailing list at Nikita, N-I-K-I-T-A, banks.com, just like the movie. So we're getting to our show right now. Now, if you tuned into last week's episode, you know that we had a very special guest, psychiatrist, Dr. Curran Glover, and her, just like I, and a hometown girl who decided that she was going to go back to her community and the community that raised her to help utilize her skills and talents for the people who look like her. So for me, that is Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn, where I'm in private practice. And for her, that is returning to the BX, yes, the Bronx, New York, in order to be able to service the people of her community with Montefiore Medical Center. And so if you didn't listen to that episode, I suggest that you do because we talked about a lot of interesting things such as what you should probably do before trying psychotropic meds. There are some natural ways that you'll be able to boost your mood as well as reduce symptoms of mental health issues through natural remedies and physical activities as well as Using integrative practice methods in primary care, which would combine theories of social work as well as medical theories to help our clients in reduction of symptoms and providing them with psychoeducation in primary care settings as well as medical settings. And one of the things I've always said about mental health and the importance of it, especially when it comes to psychiatry and a diagnosis and the use, utilization of practices that will help to reduce symptoms is that therapy is always recommended. And not to say that one is more important than the other. It's just that some diagnosis and reduction of symptoms can be benefited by the use of psychotropic drugs or psycho prescribed medications. 
I like that better, but prescribed medications. And every single one of us can benefit from the life skills that they will gain from going to therapy. So therapy is always recommended. However, psychiatry is extremely important in deciding whether or not you need medication or if circumstances change where medication is recommended. So a lot of people come to me and their their fear is whether or not they're going to have to take meds for the rest of their lives. And I always say that I don't know because that is above my pay grade. But what I do know is who knows is a psychiatrist. You should at least go to a psychiatrist once a month. Whether you decide whether you're going to take medication or not, whether they decide that medication is necessary or not, depending on what your mental health diagnosis is. And the reason that I say that is because things change, things happen, biologically we change, our needs change. And so in order to make that determination, the only person that should be able to do that, and it is specialized to do that, is a psychiatrist. So if you have a mental health diagnosis, if you know someone who has a mental health diagnosis, you might want to suggest that they also go to see a psychiatrist as well as a therapist. Hand in hand, those two methods will increase your chances of symptom reduction and increase your chances of being able to have a happy, healthy, and normal life. A diagnosis is not the end all and be all. It's just a starting point that providers use in order to be able to do what they need to do to provide you with the best care to make you feel better. Okay. Obviously, we talked about the role of culturally competent care and the importance necessity for representation in the medical field. The last thing that we discussed was my opinion about whether or not psychiatry as it is now is a dying field and why. So we are going to get back into that right now. I think the way I see organizations making that adaptation is they're not hiring psychiatrists anymore. They're hiring a lot of nurse practitioners. I feel like psychiatry is a dying field. I mean, you may have a different perspective on that, but There's also a shortage of psychiatrists. There's not a lot of us. And let me tell you why I feel like it's a dying field. Because when I go to many of the organizations that I work with where there are psychiatrists there, they are older, usually white, um, and they're they're just not going to be around a lot longer, number one. I mean, no no offense, but it it just is what it is. There are not enough people like you who are are younger and enthusiastic about being in, in psychiatry. And in terms of like people of color, a lot more people are going into social work, I see, than they are going into psychology. Because if you could shave off those extra four years to get your 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 degree and to be in practice and start working, why wouldn't you? So I feel like a lot of people, that student loan debt hanging over your head is the difference between you being an NP or a DR. A lot of people are just not electing to do it anymore. And so in a lot of the organizations that I go to, they have nurse practitioners, uh, psychiatric nurse practitioners on staff who uh, write prescriptions and they, they see the clients in places where they probably wouldn't have a psychiatrist or they probably wouldn't be able to keep their doors open? Uh, Hmm. I don't know the numbers on that. I will say, I mean, I know that there is 
definitely a shortage. And as people recognize the need for mental health, lots of people are coming into the picture, especially given the opiate crisis, so that um, PAs, physician assistants, are getting into it as well. So I do think there – so the American Psychiatric Association, uh, the annual meeting – where everybody comes together to, to have symposium workshops and stuff like that. That's going to be in New York in May. And one of the things that I'm passionate about is mentorship. So I know that there's like 3% of like all psychiatrists are, are black. And so that's a, a really tiny number. It's really small. And so we're working on it. I have to remain hopeful. Part of, I think the, the, the push to to at least maintain a certain number of us in the field is basically because as our country becomes browner, we want to make sure that people have a place where they feel comfortable, they see somebody who likely has some kind of cultural connection to them so that they are more likely to be diagnosed properly and they are more likely to be assessed accurately and be treated in a way that is compassionate. That's not to say that non-black people are in, unable to work in a compassionate way with people who are of a different background, but there's a lot of data, like, you, like you've already expressed. There's, there's data to back up what you're saying, that when you um, have somebody in the field who is of a similar background, that the, the clients are more likely to be diagnosed and treated in a way that, that's accurate. Yeah, I will never forget. Uh, There was a class that we took, HB3, and my professor was, she was on the board of social workers who wrote up the licensing exam. And one of the questions on the test was, uh, we were doing test prep, one of the the questions on the test was, a black man comes with the comes in with a collection of symptoms, what's the diagnosis? So obviously I raised my hand. I'm like, there are no symptoms here. And she was like, do your best. And the the answer of, of the question was schizophrenia. What she was implying, and she told us outright, is that black people are usually overdiagnosed. So if you come, they come in with something usually, and I went to NYU, Usually they they are overdiagnosed, and I was like, okay, I understand that that's the reality, but this is a real test about us passing <laughs> us passing a licensing exam. Like, why aren't there any symptoms here? And thank God there weren't any real questions like that on the test. But I think she was really trying to reiterate to mostly white students. And I went to school in, in New York City, and there were not a lot of diverse people in the social work program that I was in. So, and I think we had we had maybe a handful of professors of color, and I think one of them was tenured. Wow, yeah. Representation matters, right? It really does. And I think that, you know, what you touched on earlier is cultural competence. I don't know. I don't think I want to go to a white psychiatrist. And I'm I'm now looking for a psychiatrist to go to. Not that I think I need medication, but I have some questions. And I'm not opposed to taking medication. I've tried to take meds before, and I think I may have told this story as well. So when I first realized that I was feeling sad, because my therapist, he refused to diagnose me, but I know I had dysthymia. But while I first realized I was feeling sad, I did exactly what you said. I went to my primary care physician and I was like, I think I need to see someone. And she was like, okay. And I was like, but I'm black and we really don't do that. And she was like, well, I'm glad you're progressive. <laughs> I'm going to give you 
somebody to talk to, and I'm going to give you this medication sample. So she gave me the meds. I went back home. I told my friends, yo, I went to the doctor. I got a referral to all of these doctors. I slipped in my therapist in there. She's like, you going to a therapist? I was like, yeah. And so she also gave me some medication. And she's like, are you going to try it? And I was like, well, I already took one. And so I don't remember what it was now. I just know it was very low dose, probably like five milligrams of whatever it was. And took it for one day. I felt okay. The next day I felt queasy. So I was like, oh, I don't, I don't like feeling queasy. Maybe this will pass. And I spoke to my son was an actor at the time. I spoke to his manager about something she had called. And I was like, listen, I'm going through, through this emotional stuff. I'm just trying to figure it out. The doctor put me on something and I'm trying to see how this makes me feel. And she's Jewish. And she was like, tell me what it is. I've been on everything. And that was the first indicator that culturally we're just different, Right. So I took it and I told her and she was like, well, this is what it does. And I mean, honestly, she was like a psychiatrist. She, the things that she told me that day are now like things I tell my client. But she was like, you know, it takes about 30 days for you to mellow out. Your body got to get used to it. You know, just don't, don't take it on an empty stomach. You got to make sure you. And I was like, OK, all right. So I'm going to keep trying this for a few more days. So I kept trying it. And I, my friend called me back and she was like, please, God, don't take the drugs. I mean, you can go to a therapist, but don't take the drugs. And I was like, leave me alone. But I stopped taking them because my primary care physician loved her to life. She's not a psychiatrist. That's the first thing. And she's just giving me these medications. Like, I, I know she's my doctor. She's been my doctor for 20 years. She probably just wanted to make me feel better. I was, like, in tears. I was, like, you know, in such distress. Probably she felt, she was, like, she just kind of wanted to do something to, make, to help. And when we give these clients the referrals, we don't know if they're actually going to call. So she told me to call the therapist, but she didn't know whether I was going to do it or not. So in giving me the medication, I was like, you know what? Maybe I want to speak to the therapist first to see if that. But if it wasn't for the side effects of it making me feel queasy, I could have, I could still be taking those meds because I had more energy. I didn't feel as sad. I was, I was kind of, I felt better. I did feel better taking the meds. And I think a lot of people realize that they feel better in taking the meds, but they want to fight the fact that taking the medication every day to feel better makes them feel abnormal. They just kind of want to know if they can normally do this on their own. Yeah, I think that's one of the things that makes me really, really um, passionate about the work because we know that we don't tell diabetic people, like, if you just fight harder and and think less about insulin or about diabetes, you will probably improve. Why would we say that to somebody who's depressed? Like there's a biochemical reason for the depression. The same way there's a biochemical reason for the diabetes, right? The pancreas stops working or in the case of type 1 diabetes or in the case of type 2 diabetes, the cells don't allow the sugar into the inside the cell, right? So, so there's stigma, right, around mental illness. There's the way that people conceive depression particularly that says if you just fight through it, if you just, if you just suffer longer and go to church more and take more warm baths, you can probably get through this, right? Instead of saying, you know, sometimes it's okay to take a medication and let me prepare you for the side effects and you and there's nothing wrong with taking a medication to feel better. So for my 
patients, I usually have that conversation and say, you know, to what, and to also acknowledge that the treatment is not just through medication. It's a combination of can you start taking walks in your neighborhood or somewhere, anywhere? Can you be physically active? Because physical activity is shown to be very helpful for boosting your mood. Who, who, who are your loved ones? Who's here to support you? Who can help you feel better? And to what extent are you isolated from the people you love because of what you're going through? How about, can we use the behavioral activation, which I'm sure you know about, right? And then on top of that, it's who is your spiritual support? Because for some people, their spiritual life is extremely important. So I try to take a multi-pronged approach so that people don't just feel like they're dependent on medication, that it's a holistic experience. I also ask people, what are you eating? So I try to do it that way. And and then, as you said, like, I, I do try to prepare my patients for the side effects. And so, like you said, primary care doctors – Often, they are very troubled when their patients start to cry. So I've gotten referrals from primary care doctors where they're like, this patient was very tearful. I really think she should see you. And I'm like, you know, crying is actually not a diagnosis. And so let's ask a few more questions before we refer them all the way to psychiatry. So that's why I think it's such a great thing that Montefiore is doing, um, and lots of other institutions are doing this, not just Montefiore, but providing social work in primary care so that the person is literally two doors away and they can sit down with somebody who has more time in their schedule and more a greater skill set to actually do the diagnosis and start talking about treatment. What I wanted to, to speak to you also about is ADHD, the diagnosis. Uh, I read an article a long time ago, and I know this to be true because I went to high school in Hayfield, at, at, a, at a high school called Hayfield Secondary in Fairfax County, Virginia. And growing up in Brooklyn and being in Fairfax County, Virginia, it was just kind of like night or day. But there was not a stigma around taking um, ADD medication or ADHD medication. I read an article years ago that white people were going to their psychiatrists and paying for a psychiatric diagnosis. Because if their kid got diagnosed with either ADHD, ADD, and they were able to take Adderall, the drug helped them concentrate a lot more, number one, and it gave them more time on their SATs. So they were able to, to uh, make a lot more. And some psychiatrists were charging around $10,000 for the diagnosis. Not, I'm not, this is not a you thing. However, in the black community, there is definitely a stigma surrounding getting that diagnosis for children who either may need it or may not need it. Because as we stated, if you don't have a culturally competent doctor, you, you sometimes have to question a diagnosis. And some things, if you're dealing with young black boys who are energetic or they're smart, and they're, of course they're going to be bored and be, be you know, misbehave in class. So I just kind of wanted to know, like, what your thoughts are on, like, the different dynamics race plays in that diagnosis. And there's a financial benefit. There may be a financial benefit to the diagnosis. So, yeah. Well, I guess the first thing I should start with is that I'm an adult psychiatrist, so I don't treat kids. So I do 18 and over. So 
I think that question is probably better posed to a child psychiatrist. But what I can say, and I can, I can certainly point you to some wonderful ones. The, the first thing that comes to mind though is the issue of stigma, right? And that often lots of kids have lots of different learning styles, but our education system only accommodates like three, right? Like you're better, you're like the best off if you're a visual learner. Cause that means all you have to do is sit and look and you'll learn. But if you're an auditory learner, then that means you have to be listening and that the visual stuff is going to pass you by, but that you could also be kind of doing something with your hands. And as long as you're listening, you're learning. But, of course, if you're busy with your hands in the classroom, then your teacher thinks you're not being attentive. So then there there may end up being disciplinary issues simply because you're an alternative kind of learner, right? Or if you're a tactile learner, you know, some of that. So you understand where I'm going with this is that our education system isn't in many ways built to, to appreciate and to accommodate lots of different kinds of learners. And then stigma has proven to be a difficult thing for black people to deal with insofar as we get tracked more than white children as special ed, which in some ways, right, once you get put into special ed, how do you get out of it? That's one question. And it requires a lot of advocacy on the behalf of parents who may be working two jobs. So, like, which way are parents supposed to go on this? I mean, I think I think parents are in a very, very tough position. And one of the things that I think the city has gotten behind, and certainly, again, my institution, Montefiore, has gotten behind, is making sure that those kids can come get evaluated by a psychiatrist in primary care so that they can get either the medication they need so that they can function in their in their learning environment because it's proven that if your kid does not get the education they need, they're at risk for so many diseases and terrible health outcomes later on in life. So it, I think it's super important that people stay open-minded about some of these diagnoses and have somebody like you to talk through these issues with especially if they just show up at primary care to get a flu shot for their kid or something like that, and then they have somebody like you to engage about these things, that's huge. That's life-changing. That's generation-changing. I do believe that that it, it makes all of the difference. And it, it also introduces, you know, what I, I represent in this group. My, my private practice is called Proactive Mental Wellness because I don't think enough of us proactively go. We're not a proactive country anyway, but I don't think enough of us proactively go and seek mental health before something happens. So I have two more questions. The, the last one should have probably been my first one, but why psychiatry for you? Oh, so part of, so a, a couple of reasons. One is that I grew up, so my parents, so like I said, I'm black. My grandparents are from South Carolina and Georgia and Mississippi, and they came up to New York in the 1940s during the Great Migration because they got tired of lynching and being unemployed, right? Racial trauma displaced them, essentially made it made the South a very unfriendly place for them to be. So they were internally displaced people. So they moved up to New York. Um, and my parents were born in Harlem and they were raised and came up into their twenties in in the nineteen sixties. So they were exposed 
to basically what turned out to be kind of a heroin epidemic in the 1960s and 70s. So my cousins who were born in the 70s and 80s came through a heroin epidemic and a crack epidemic. And, and so you and I are probably close in age. So we remember what New York was like during those times. I happen to be related to kids whose parents were completely disabled. Not all of my cousins, but some of my cousins, their parents were completely disabled because of their drug use. So my parents, you know, thank God they were willing to talk about what was happening to our family and made it clear. Like, this is what happens when parents can't raise their kids. See how they're suffering. So because I was too young to change my family, right, I dedicated my life to changing other people's lives. So that's, that's, that's the short reason, the short yet deep reason that I chose psychiatry. Yeah. And I think that that, that usually is what happens is you just kind of have personal experience. So my mother was one of eight and she, my mother was the only one of eight who did not have a drug issue. I did I did see it, but also my mother is a denier of everything negative. She just doesn't want it in our space. She doesn't acknowledge it. It's not real. It's, it's, it's a whole other thing that she and I are working on. But I kind of was shielded from a lot of the drug use. It wasn't until I actually moved back to New York after I graduated from high school that I realized that a lot of my family members were on drugs. I just, it, it, either, she just kept me away from them. She's just like, you just can't, you can't go over there. You just can't go over there with no explanation or anything. And of course, if that's the fun aunt and it's parties over there. And I'm like, that's where I want to be. What do you mean I can't go over there? So um, I, I kind of got it once I got older that there was a lot of dysfunction in my family and the same. I, I cannot fix them. They don't care that I went to school. They don't care that I read a book. They don't care. They just, they they look at me, they see me, I'm still little Nikita, and that's all that, that there is to it. And they don't think in terms of like how I can assist them unless there's a major problem. Then they'll call me. <laughs> then they'll call me for services or something. But yeah, yeah, I grew up probably around the, the, the same kind of environment. My dad was born in Harlem Hospital. And so, yeah, I, I know exactly what you're, what you're talking about. Tell the people where they can find you. So I, so I don't have a private practice. Um, so I do um, speaking engagement. So people can follow me on Instagram. That's D-R-K-A-R-I-N-N. That's on Instagram. And on Twitter, same thing. And on Facebook, same thing. D-R-K-A-R-I-N-N. And my last name is Glover, G-L-O-V, like Victor, E-R. And so I do, I do lots of teaching around decreasing stigma, how to get access to mental health, teaching people about the role of mental health for, for our generation of, of people who are progressive and trying to do better for ourselves and our community, for our families. So happy to engage with people. This is one of my favorite things. I am so excited. I told you when I had this idea a year and a half ago <laughs> to have you on the podcast. I'm so excited that we got to finally meet up uh, electronically and uh, and to spread the word in podcast world that, you know, mental health is for everybody. It definitely is. And I'm, I'm grateful that, you know, you show up in the spaces, especially working in the Bronx, when people see you and they realize that you are their psychiatrist or they see that you are the doctor that's treating them, that you know that just having your presence be there and just having the the opportunity 
or people seeing the opportunity for us to be in those spaces and in those roles is so important. So what you do in and who you are and what you represent is so important in these spaces. And I really appreciate you. Oh, my gosh. I received that, Nikita. Thank you so much. Once again, we want to thank Dr. Corinne Glover for coming on the show. This was an amazing show. And if you would like to sign up to our free mental health course, go to the mailing list. If you live in New York City and you are looking for a therapist and you are in the Brooklyn, New York area, you can reach me at NikitaBanks.com so that you'll be able to get an appointment. Have a good day and be well. You've listened to another episode of the Black Therapist Podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Nikita Banks, licensed clinical social worker, and this is Black Therapist Podcast, formerly Black in Therapy. If you are looking for any information, any resources about today's show, or if you just want to drop a line and say hey and subscribe to our mailing list, you can do so at our website, blacktherapistpodcast.com. You can send us emails at blacktherapistpodcast at gmail.com and if you enjoyed what you heard today please like comment share and subscribe because we want the show to grow as organically as we possibly can and we cannot do that without you thank you for listening be well